For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Wednesday, everyone. I'm sorry I'm a little late getting here, but I couldn't put this book down. Sex, drugs, and pilot season. That's a lot to celebrate. Who or what are you celebrating tonight? I am so excited about tonight's guest. I want to do a big shout out to someone else that I'm always celebrating, and that's Judy Chorsky. The publicist to the stars. She's the greatest publicist out there, and she believes in her clients. And we were having dinner. Well, we went, we went to see Mary Lou Henner uh, a few months ago, more than a few months ago, uh, and we were at 54 Below. And she slipped me an advanced copy of this book. And I have been sitting, waiting for this show for so long. We are finally here. It's happening tonight. We've got stories to tell, or I should say Joel has stories to tell. All this month, we are celebrating National Book Blitz Month. And the purpose of Book Blitz Month is to get people to go back and read again. And if this book won't get you in the mood for reading, nothing will. Before I bring Joel on, who's waiting patiently in the wings, I would like to show you just a few of the authors that we've had on this show since we started doing this podcast at the beginning of COVID. Here are just a sample of just a few that have been on this show. Here they are. Happy hump day, Joel. <laughs> How are you? I got you. <laughs> Great. I am telling you, I am so excited that you're here. I always begin every show by asking my guest, who or what are you celebrating tonight, uh, besides the release of this incredible book? Well, uh, you know, it, it, it's if you go to the last page of my book, um, I talk about living, living, I want to say modestly, whatever the word is, but living in the same house I've lived in for a long while in Laurel Canyon, having the most incredible neighbors. Um, and I, I say in the book, when I first moved to this part of Laurel Canyon, um, children were an invasive species. If anybody had a kid, they were gone within two years. Now I think I'm one of the only houses without kids. And I'm like a surrogate grandfather, uncle, whatever, to all the little kids who range from like four to six or seven. And I love all of them. And they love me. <laughs> and, they, and they know to come to my house when they need candy or to complain about their parents. And I'm not grooming them. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not. You know, I, you know, I hear these people say, uh, you know, and we're going to talk about so many things tonight that I want to touch upon in the book that some of the questions may surprise you. Uh, little things that you said, they're not little, jumped out at me that I really want to focus on tonight. But when you talk about grooming, I, you know, I said, you know, I growing up uh, in South Carolina, coming to New York, where were these groomers? I never <laughs> met them. You know, in my entire life, I've never met them. So this idea that people are putting that out into the world is just absurd. Well, I don't know. I, I think maybe everything today is same. Excuse me. Things These things used to go on years ago, but nobody talked about them. 
I think that's a difference. But, you know, let's get off that. That was a, absolutely. I, well, you say in the book that you were part of the uh, Me Too movement long before there was a Me Too movement. So I applaud you for that. So thank, thank you for that. Uh, oh. Yes, there. I, this book, as I said, uh, is such a page turner. Um, I'm actually wearing uh, David Merrick red tonight because <laughs> I wanted to take you well, back. Look, and, look at your curtain in back of you. Yes, when you were 21, going into his office, and as I'm reading the book, Sylvia Schwartz, believe it or not, was a very dear friend of mine. Mm. And there are so many names uh, that are in this book. Uh, it's very interesting, Joel, because first of all, you are a brilliant writer. Uh, the Everything just jumps off the page. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking this would make a great documentary. I don't even know if that's something that you've even thought of, because it really gives a history of show business through the 60s, 70s, 80s and beyond. Uh, and it's a really great read. Um, I've learned a lot of filling in the blanks but behind the scenes. Uh, which is amazing. Uh, but I want to go back to you were born in Brooklyn and you actually grew up on a farm in Brooklyn, which I never <laughs> even realized there were farms in Brooklyn. Can you take us there for a moment? And I'm going to bring up a photo here. Uh, here you are as a little boy. Uh, and I always ask my guest for a photograph around the time of five. How old do you, are you in this photograph? Well, I'm guessing, I have no idea, but I'm guessing that looks like eight or nine or whatever. It looks like I'm a very unhappy camper in camp. <laughs> uh, I, good reason. I hated summer camp because I have absolutely zero hand-eye coordination. So any sport involving a ball, I can't do. And guess what? That's guess what most camp activities are, you know. Um, so I spent half of my time either, uh, you know, in the water where I was a good swimmer, or in the arts and crafts shack making wallets, belts, you know, whatever. <laughs> and I, you know, I love. I mean, when you talk about your school years, and you know, first of all, starting in school uh, was also a miserable experience for you. Uh, you were constantly leaving class. Um, but uh, when you got in trouble, um, the other boys in school, uh, and I wasn't able to get the photograph up in time, so I apologize, but uh, you mentioned in the book that your mom was a hottie, and she was. Uh, the boys <laughs> all got excited when she came to school to, you know, for whatever issues you were dealing with at the time. Well, I don't know. You said something in the beginning of that sense that I disagree with. Uh, I, it wasn't a horrible experience. I... Um, I, I'm, you know, uh, school was fine. My, I mean, and I had a very good friend named Howard Topoff. And we were the two smallest boys because we both skipped grades. Mm -hmm. And we were lined up in sized places or by alphabet, we were always next to each other. Years and years later, Howard and I reconnected. He is now a world famous ant, that's A-N-T, scientist at the Museum of Natural History in New York. He was the one who told me that because I was a quote unquote bad kid, bad kid, meaning I was always fooling around in class. I mean, it, it wasn't, it didn't involve guns or shooting. Mm -hmm. I always would call to the principal's office, like regularly, once every two weeks. And he was the one who told me that the boys in the class would line up to see my mother. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was a very beautiful woman. I saw the photo of it uh, that was sent to me. Um, 
as you were growing up and living, and a lot of this is in the book, and we're going to talk in about specific uh, things in the book, but uh, if you can just give uh, a Reader's Digest trajectory of the path from Brooklyn into the world of show business and how that happened for you. Well, uh, the, the, we start with the fact that I knew I did not want to do any profession that was remotely connected to my family. And as I say in the book, the only professions that were good ones for nice Jewish boys were, what is it, doctor, lawyer, dentist, uh, accountant, and teacher. That was if you were a boy and if you were a girl, you were supposed to marry one of those in that order. So uh, I, didn't, uh, I did not make it into Brooklyn College because I was a, um, I, I think I probably should cut to the chase though, because I had really bad school marks because I never really cared, but test scores off the charts. So I was sent to a special program for underachievers at Hunter College in the Bronx. At Hunter College in the Bronx, um, I was told one way to meet people was to join the theater group. And since I was always interested, not necessarily in theater itself, although by that time, I used to go to the public library and listen to show records at the library, or my parents would go to a Broadway show musical like maybe twice a year at the most, I would pour over the programs. So I suddenly found I liked all this. And I also found out during a performance of Down in the Valley, excuse me, of, oh God, there's this uh, famous musical that they always do in college, uh, The Witch Boy, whatever it was, you may know it. And I had to sing on, um, I had to sing and play a guitar and I realized how terrible I was. <laughs> so uh, I decided while I wanted to be in show business, it was not gonna be in acting. <laughs> So at the end of the first semester in Hunter, all the theater kids were looking in backstage for acting jobs. I looked there and I said, well, there's a box office job opened at the Tappan Zee Playhouse in Nyack, New York. And I became their box office treasurer. Do you know that I lived just below where that was? I believe it. It was a great place to live. <laughs> I live in Rockton County. I live in Piermont, uh, just below Nyack. Uh, so, but you ended up there, Joel, what was it about the business that was pulling you in at such an early age? I mean, you knew very early on that you did not want to be on stage, but the idea of being part of that world, what was the pull or the draw? It was fun. It was fun. Well, I, you know, I, I knew I wanted to be in that business, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know of all the, all the things you could do besides being an actor. So in the Tappan Z Playhouse box office, all the phone calls came through the box office for the production and everything else. So I got to talk to every agent's assistant, <laughs> you know, and got to have, and that's how I made a lot of my early friends and later important connections because those assistants became very important, you know? So uh, right. I don't know if, and I was just always fascinated with that era. Well, not that era, that, um, what's the word? Or, not aura, but the surrounding, that milieu. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. You know, it was fun. It was, I was having fun. And as, and how many people, and a, a years later, many, many years later, a boss of mine at NBC, incredible woman by the Ethel Winant on a very slow afternoon, grabbed her, everybody who worked with her together. And do you realize how lucky you guys are? You look forward to going to work every day. Imagine how many people in this country don't. 
Well, I want to jump ahead a little bit. Uh, when uh, you were 21, uh, you were pulled into the world of David Merrick. And David Merrick, I've been working on a book for several years, hopefully next year's the year, celebrating the history of Hello, Dolly, and all of the actresses who have played Dolly. So I've interviewed many people. And one of the names that jumps out at me, uh, which you talk about, of course, in the book, is Jack Schlissel. Yeah. Uh, who was like, uh, he was referred to as David Merrick's hatchet man. Yes. But if you can talk, bring us there for a moment of what it was like, I know, uh, and you go into detail in the book, I can feel everything that you felt walking through those doors above the St. James Theater <laughs> the first time. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I did, there's so much to tell and I don't want to take up all your time. So what I will- No, that's what we're here for. Okay, well, I, is there a time limit? <laughs> uh, well, we'll go for, uh, uh, well, I'm watching the clock, so you're fine. Okay. All right, well, the first thing you would think that when you got off the elevator, which was above, uh, Merrick's office were above, is, were uh, Merrick's offices, were above the St. James Theater, uh, one of the best theaters on Broadway. It's always booked. You got in that elevator and the doors opened and it looked like you were going to a welfare office. Uh, there, the only furniture was an old wooden two-seater bench. Uh, the linoleum looked like it had been trafficked by, you know, for a hundred years. There was a dirty glass window with the receptionist behind it. He spent no expense on doing that stuff. So um, that was my first impression. But when I met Jack, um, I, I don't know. He, Jack was Merrick's general manager, which means under Merrick, he was in control of everything. He was higher than the production manager who was responsible. The guy's name was Biff Liff, mm -hmm. responsible for all the areas that I really wanted to work in. But get your foot in the door and then figure out everything else. That's, that's what I did. And... Jack took a liking to me, um, and, and I would say, why not? I'm likable. But, yes. <laughs> uh, but the key to it was I lived two subway stops away, so it took me six minutes to get to work. And there were no such thing as coffee machines in offices. So our routine was I would stop and pick up coffee from the diner on the corner and bagels. And I would sit in Jack's office, and we would talk about a movie I saw the night before, a play, one of our shows where an understudy went on. And I guess he listened to all of these things. You know, this was, uh, this was all, I mean, and the, one of the great things there was I could go see every Broadway play for free because, I, and I did. And um, one day, uh, you tell me if I'm going off track. No, no, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. So one day, Jack would, you know, Jack, by the way, was very gruff and feared by everybody. Um, but inside, he was a pussycat, as I was going to find out later on. But he calls me into his office and said, look, I can't stand working with you anymore. So you got a choice. You could go work with Biff, reopen our casting department, become our casting director, get a $50 a week raise, or you're fired. That was my choice. And I said, Jack, I don't know anything about casting. And he said, yes, you do. You just don't know you do. <laughs> and that's how I went to work with Biff Liff and became Biff's assistant and became Merrick's casting director. Amazing. Just an amazing story. Uh, you talk about, and it's something that jumped out at me. I mentioned- Dolly's you're talking about. That's right. We can go back when, if you want. 
Yeah, uh, there were certain things that jumped out at me. Um, you do a real breakdown uh, early on in the book of what a, a great casting director is all about, what you brought to the table, what you learned as you went along in casting so many of the iconic. And I want to thank you uh, for the shows that you've cast that have given such pleasure to all of us. All the stuff that went on behind the scenes, some of it was great, a lot, most of it was great, but you also dealt with the other side of it. But for those of us who were the viewers, I say thank you. Um, and one of the things that you said that I never, ever thought about until I read it uh, in your book, uh, and here we are, the Oscar nominations just came out yesterday. I think we've lost Joel. Hopefully you're, Joel, can you still hear me? He disappeared. Uh, he'll be back. Uh, I'll keep talking until he gets back. Uh, Joel, uh, hopefully he'll, you know, come back in. Uh, I don't know what happened. But anyway, uh, as I was saying, and I will repeat this when Joel does come back on camera, is Joel talks about the breakdown of, there you okay. are. Uh, Wait a minute, Richard, I have to ask you something technical. I'm sorry. A friend of mine was just calling in. If I put my phone in airplane mode, would we get disconnected? Uh, no. Uh, we well, should. Then, Do you want to try that? Well, I'll try it. If not, let me if, just if try. If you get disconnected, come back in. How do I do? Well, let's see. Let me just do. This is the magic of a live show, everyone. <laughs> okay, well, I can hear you, but I can't see you. So okay. now what do I do? Uh, if you want to leave and come back in, uh, try doing that. Uh, log out, come back in. I will continue to talk until you come back. Okay, when I say, and, and, I, and I, this is, I'm sorry, it's so stupid. So I come back no, to okay. you. Just click on the same link again that, you, that brought you here the first you know, place. You know what I'm afraid of? Since I put on airplane mode, I won't be able to do anything. So let me un airplane, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I wish I, I wish I was a little more, uh, well, uh, what we do you call it? Go along. I didn't know that that, you know, would take you off camera, but, uh, we want to see your beautiful face. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you. All right. So I'm just going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to log out of every, I'm going to, I'm going to hang up because you were through the phone. I don't know how to do that. Uh, oh shit. Sorry. That's podcast. okay. Happen. Well, do you want to continue to do this just verbally and you can show uh, a picture of me? Uh, well, I mean, well, I can continue to talk. You can continue to try it. If you can get back on camera, uh, that'll be fine. I'm actually going to take you off and uh, just log back on again and see if that makes okay. a difference. Okay. All right. I'm going to do the same. Okay. So I'm going to take you okay. off and uh, hopefully he'll come back in a moment. That's the magic of live theater. You just go with what's happening. Uh, and one of the things that you'll learn in Joel's book is being open to the changes, what comes along. Um, I'd like to just go over, if you see the cover of this book, uh, let me talk about the artwork. Glenn Hansen, uh, one of the greatest uh, caricaturists out there. Uh, I have been such a fan of Glenn's work for so long. 
that uh, my upcoming show, just to put a plug in there, uh, I actually reached out to Glenn uh, to do the artwork, but he's so busy, uh, he would not be able to get the artwork ready for me by the time my show opens. So Glenn, if any, if you're watching this, if you see this, if anything opens up, uh, I still would love to have you do that. And if you're not able to do that, I still love you. And I would love to have you on the show at any time to talk about the work that you do. But some of the shows that Joel uh, has done uh, the casting for, uh, Miami Vice, Grease, the movie, um, Taxi, uh, Charlie's Angels, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Golden Girls, uh, Hello Dolly, Pearl Bailey, and The Love Boat. Uh, I've got so many questions. I hope he's going to get back on here. Uh, the book is a page turner. Uh, you learn so much about how he grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, you learn about his grandparents. You learn uh, about the road to show business and how he eventually uh, you know, made it to Hollywood. All of those things are in place. Uh, it's, uh, it's, there he is. He's back. Okay. Joel, you're back. I was telling them, and then we'll go back to where I was. Uh, first of all, congratulations on the cover of the book. Glenn Hansen is one of my favorite artists in this business. And the fact that he did such a phenomenal job, that's what I was talking about while you were off. Well, I, I, you know, if I was going to mention that, but he, I think the, the, the reason why people like the book so much is that you see that cover and it makes you want to open it. You know, well, it's uh, and he made me look really good. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, I reached out to him because I've got an upcoming show and I wanted him to do the, to do the artwork, but he's so busy, uh, you know, that he wasn't able to do it. So uh, but well, I, I, I'm, this may be self-serving, but one of the reasons that he did mine was a lot of those characters he already had. So he only had to add a few of them. And he also said, and again, I'm, I'm patting myself on the back. And you've said it, but he was a big fan of all the stuff that I cast in the 80s. <laughs> yes. No, it's all here and uh, great. But what I was saying before you were kicked yeah. off uh, is uh, you break down what your essential day-to-day -day work was as a casting director. And one of the things that jumped out at me, and I didn't even, I've never thought about this until you brought it to my attention, and as Oscar season has just started and we're underway with that, the fact that the casting director is not a category in the Oscars, and yet there's a category for wigs. And we love wig makers. We love what they do. That's not to knock them. Uh, but why do you feel that there is not a category uh, for I'll, I'll tell you. I know exactly why. By the way, on television, there is a category for an Emmy. But then again, in Emmy, the Emmys have 47,000 categories. Yes. But um, very funny. I, I, who was it? Stephen Colbert the other day said, talk about daytime Emmys. And he said, well, if you have two daytime Emmys, can you trade them in for one nighttime? <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it was Nathan Lane. He was talking to him. But, yes, but I saw it, that. It has to do with the Directors Guild, which is the most powerful, one the most powerful guild and union in Hollywood. First of all, they don't recognize the term casting director. If you look at a movie, when the credits, it'll say casting by. Um, also, what they, I don't know, and I don't understand this, but it's their opinion that the director is making the decisions. So why should a casting director get, um, get credit? And by the way, and 
the ultimate decision is made by whoever is financing the project. Mm-hmm. Now, whoever's financing the project may decide that Steven Spielberg knows more than they do, and he'll have the final say. But if it's John Q. Smith in his or her first uh, directing gig, well, guess what? They may not. And the casting director's opinion is going to be very, very important to helping that new director's work you know, be successful. So, I, I, I mean, I, what really surprised me was there was a casting director and he's back to he was the head of the uh, Motion Picture Academy, David Rubin, mm-hmm. who heard casting director. And I was hoping while he was there, he was able to get that to happen. Now, I'm not in any of their board meetings and all of that. And I haven't asked David what happened or why what didn't happen. But anyway, that's the long answer to your short question. Do you think that will ever change? Eventually, yes. Eventually. It has to be, you know, um, I, I heard what's her name who was very much opposed to this. And you would know this. And I don't his who is Helen Mirren's husband, the director? Um, uh, someone's going to tell us in a moment. I'm sure uh, one of our viewers will. Wait, uh, he was uh, the head of the Directors Guild and he was vehemently opposed to it. Amazing. So that's, that's amazing. That, I've been told it could be apocryphal, Helen. Don't yell. <laughs> I want to ask you a question, and I hope that I'm not putting you on the spot with this question. Uh, but I was reading an article today um, about the casting of the new biopic that's coming up on George Michael. Uh-huh. And several people are up in arms because the actor who has been cast uh, is straight, uh, when we all know that George Michael was gay. Um This has become a controversy in today's world. Uh, As a matter of fact, Tom Hanks recently said that if Philadelphia had come out today, that's a role that he would not be doing, uh, a role that he got the Academy Award for. Uh, What are your thoughts on this? I will. Uh, First of all, I think it's nonsense. Um, You know, uh, Rami Zalek, I mean, I forgot mispronouncing his last name. I believe great and he played what what's his name i'm going out of my head and he won freddie, an mercury. freddie mercury yeah it should go to the best person for the part you know i think when tom hanks was doing philadelphia there were no out actors uh, taylor hackford was is the person that you're looking for so yeah alan through you taylor hackford um anyway um so there were no um out actors there are still zero out actors in feature films there are on television, but feature films, because the and I believe it's because the economics are so the cost so much to do a movie that just people don't do that. So the, your broader question, you don't have to be gay to play gay if it works out fine. And in terms of being, you know, you certainly don't have to be gay to play George Michael. I mean, if if, if someone is and it works out that way, great. But that's not the biggest requirement. I mean, uh, if you find someone who fills all those categories, wonderful. You know, I totally I, agree with you. I mean, I think about uh, to me. Wait, wait, uh, I can please. Yes, the, the, the friend of mine wrote the uh, James Gavin wrote a wonderful the last biography of George Michael. He wrote the book, and he thinks the best person should play the part, not a person who is gay. You know, how would how would we feel? I mean, should Audrey Hepburn not have been hired to do My Fair Lady because someone else had to dub her? You know, film is an illusion, folks. It's an illusion. <laughs> We're not doing... 
the movie of Greece was not cast with teenagers. And I actually, by the way, think that was one of its assets because it's not a documentary. You had really good people who played those roles. And well, anyway, I should shut up and ask, and you ask the question. No, 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 I, no, I, I really love your perspective on this because I'm totally in agreement with you. Uh, yeah. As an actor. Now uh, I, would, I would, excuse me, I would, I, would, I, would, I would go a little further than that. If you're looking for an actor who's in a wheelchair or has some disability, try those people first and go to those people. And if it's a marginal difference between hiring the disabled actor and an abled actor, and the difference is only marginal, hire the disabled one. Absolutely. Uh, you, uh, you know, and you talk about this early on in the book, uh, you, uh, and I remember the night it aired uh, for the first time, and that's the boy in the plastic bubble, uh, oh. John Travolta. Yes. Uh, you took uh, this actor uh, that most people knew only at that point in Welcome Back, Cotter, and you showed him a different light. What was it that you saw in him that you knew that he was the right person for this? I had a great advantage because I've known John since he was 17. His manager who's now, who's, you know, sadly, he was the first person that I know who died of AIDS, Bob Lamont, mm-hmm. um, was, was Travolta's manager. So I met him very early on. I met him before I moved to California because John moved out of his family's house in Jersey when he was 17 and started working. So I knew he wasn't Vinnie Barbarino. It's that simple. Most people didn't. And so when I read the script of Boy in the Plastic Bubble, John was looking, he had done one season of Cotter and desperately wanted to do something so that people would know he wasn't Vinnie Barbarino. And he was offered the, the movie that Richard Gere did called Days of Heaven. John couldn't do it because they wouldn't give him a stop date and he had to go back to Cotter. A stop date means that's when the actor is released from his contract. So Richard Gere got that part. And John was left with one month to do something. So the timing was perfect. And by that point, by the way, John was a huge star. His cover was on every magazine. Uh, People were throwing offers at him for every project. And he wanted to do this project. He read it. And I will say, he said he he knew of my... I had met him before. And as he said, he had faith in me. Me and, excuse me, myself and Randall Kleiser, the director. So he said yes. That's wonderful. Uh, Joe, I'm a product of 1960s and 70s television. I grew up watching uh, when there were only three networks. <laughs> and those three networks, no, I, I miss those days. I truly do. And I'll tell you why. Because in those days, we all know television was only a certain block of time each day. And then you would hear the national anthem and you would get the test pattern. Uh, So you shut everything off. Uh, And those networks, as you know, were all vying for the largest demographic that they could get for any of these shows. So I saw uh, those artists from my generation sharing uh, uh, screen time with those from my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation. And as a result, we as a family sat down and watched these shows together. And two of the shows that you were involved with, with <laughs> from that era that I want to talk about uh, are Fantasy Island and Love Boat. 
Yes. <laughs> I lived for on Saturday nights. Uh, and just to see the array of stars that came through that. Uh, it, it, you know, if you can just take us back to Ray Jessel, who wrote many of those episodes, was a dear friend of mine. Uh, and people who, as I've gotten older and been in the business long enough, so many people that I got to know as friends, uh, I see still pop off the show. If you can just take us back there and what that experience was like, casting all these incredible stars from a previous generation. Well, I, I I hate to burst the bubble, <laughs> but no, no, not going back to Boy In the. Um, I cast the third Love Boat pilot. There were three of them, my and no one who was none of the regulars who were in the first one wound up in the third. That's right. That's right. But I only cast the pilot, uh, the third pilot, and the guest stars on that. I did not do anything after that. Uh, basically, I mean, I'll tell you honestly, I had a real disagreement with uh, Douglas Kramer. Douglas Kramer, um, uh, he would he, he in the in the third Love by Pilot, one of the stories was about an older couple uh, who hook up, and in the morning, the woman is work was dead in the in the in the in, dead. Ooh. Okay, you're dead. You're dead. And I, Phil Silvers, was the guy, and I had suggested Pearl Bailey for the woman. And Doug said no. And I felt, you know, I, I didn't want to work with anybody who did that. Also, I found that Doug was not open to very new ideas. So that was my choice. Um, Fantasy Island was, you know, uh, was, was wonderful. Um, I did, cannot take credit for Ricardo Montalban. Aaron Spelling's secretary said to me, have you thought of Ricardo Montalban? And can I use the word fuck on your show or do you believe oh, yes, that? Yes, you can. Yes, you and, can. And I was sitting next to her. I mean, Stan, I said, and I said, Renee, that is the best fucking idea. <laughs> <laughs> and it was. It was. Well, and I, Hervé was mine because I had known of him. And that was, you know, so that I did do. Uh, I, I will never take credit for something that is not mine. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, I have a perverse sense of morals, but right and wrong. But definitely, I think I'm on the right side of that. But to me, what is most interesting, and this is very self-serving, at one point, I was responsible for one, uh, four hours of ABC's primetime. If you count Fantasy Island, Bob Newhart, Fantasy Island, uh, excuse me, Love Boat, there was a show called Family, which is an hour, an hour drama. It's then, of awesome. course, there was the Starsky and Hutch days. I also cast a few episodes of Charlie's Angels. Some at one conject at one point in time, all five of them were on at the same time. Oh, yeah, and of course I forgot Bob Newhart. <laughs> well, so well, Bob, one, uh, Bob Newhart was on CBS. Was there a difference in terms of the of the way things were done uh, with the three networks? Or well, was, yes, yeah. Well, not so much the three networks, but there was a huge difference between. The Mary Tyler Moore Company, MTM, and Aaron Spelling. Aaron Spelling was all about stars, 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 and stars. MTM was the opposite. Mm -hmm. MTM was let's make our own stars. So, but again, neither one is wrong. You just have to, those are the parameters that you work within. Absolutely. Um, and I, I want to, you know, in another iconic moment, uh, my high school Saturday nights, I mean, you know where I'm going. 
I know um, where you're going, and I have a very smart ass answer for you when you're finished. Okay. <laughs> I want to hear the smart ass answer first. Are you talking about CBS on Saturday nights? No. Oh, then I won't. I'm sorry. I'll I'll save that for later. <laughs> but we can go with CBS on Saturday nights since you bring it up. And well, then I'll take you where I was going. CBS on Saturday nights was a perfect example of the whole family watching. Mm -hmm. And it's, you would start 8 o'clock all in the family. Uh, then you went to MASH. Then you went to Mary Tyler Moore. And then her stepbrother, Bob Newhart. And then you went to Carol Burnett. Exactly. So a Carol Burnett went on at 10. So at approximately 10.15, I would take a quarter of a Quaalude. At about 10.30, I would take the other quarter. And at the end of the show, I'd pop the rest of the Quaalude and then head out to the disco. <laughs> <laughs> and what a great time it was. That's yeah. the uh, front portion of our show, folks. Uh, but uh, I was that's not where I was going. Okay. I was going to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Please do. Uh, so as that happened, and I began when I was doing a show uh, with a theater company when I was 18, and everybody was talking about the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which this closeted kid in South Carolina, I knew nothing about. And, but they said, you have to go. And when I went to my first screening or my first showing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which was ran for years and years and years, uh, it was in the Guinness Book of World Records in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, where I grew <laughs> up, uh, of playing at a specific theater. And it may still be there for all I know. Uh, take us back there. Well, if, no one would have, could have predicted the trajectory of Rocky Horror Show. You know, I think Rocky Horror was, I think I cast the, uh, the first L.A. stage production was, I think, either in 74 or 75. And I was working for CBS. But uh, um, uh, CBS at that time had a casting department that actually cast shows. There were five of us and we cast pretty much all the really good shows on CBS. But my deal was I was able to do outside projects that did not interfere or conflict with CBS. And then uh, a, a friend of mine was a, a general manager of uh, uh, someone who was my boss at Westbury Music Fair. Wow. When I was assistant manager, Brian Avnet was the manager and he's a year older than me. Brian moved to California, became a very successful, moved to LA and became a very successful general manager. And he was the general manager of the Rocky Horror Show the stage show mm -hmm. and Brian um, uh, for those of you who don't know, general manager basically does all the things that a producer should do, but <laughs> budgets and all that. He doesn't approve things necessarily, but sets things up. So Brian asked me if I was interested in casting this. And I said, yes. And I met with Lou Adler and he liked me and I said, fine. And so I cast uh, the first person on my list was Barry Bostwick, for because I knew Barry because his manager through his manager Bob Lamont, same as Travolta's manager, so I knew Barry Bostwick would be perfect for that. But Barry turned it down, the stage version, because he was in L.A. to do movies and television. Um, Janet was a protege of Lou Adler's, who was trying to do a record deal, uh, promote as a record. You know, the other people uh, in the cast, uh, well. I cast, and then my associate in New York found Meatloaf. 
So we did it together. Uh, and, and we were the first group of casting directors to get billing on a record album. Uh, this is for the play, for the musical play. Then immediately after the play closed, Lou Adler uh, you know, was going to do the movie. And so I was asked to do the movie. And for the movie, you could upgrade it a bit. And you want me to go into the Susan Sarandon story now? Yes. Okay. So uh, for so uh, the director, Jim Sharman, knew and liked Barry and wanted Barry for that role. Um, he loved Meatloaf, so Meatloaf was set. The rest were Brits, except for the female, except for Janet. And so uh, nominally, uh, we were holding auditions at the Roxy the nightclub on uh, where, where it been played. And um, Susan Sarandon had then begun, was at sort of almost peaking at, at her. No, no, she didn't peak till later with Oscars, but she was very, very hot and everybody wanted her for everything. And I called her agents and asked to set up an audition. And what I got was, oh, no, no, no. This is not something we want her to do. <laughs> her new, very important agents. So, and she certainly won't audition. <laughs> so remember I told you about the Joel Thurm who likes to go around things? <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I called Barry, well, prior to that, now let's roll back about uh, two weeks. I had had a, in my little apartment, I had a spaghetti on lap dinner for some friends of mine. Among the two people were there were Chris Sarandon, um, because I'd met him in New York. Um, excuse me. Um, uh, yeah, Chris and Susan, the director, Randall Kleiser, Bob Lamond, and Barry Bostwick. Chris and Randall went into my bedroom to watch a movie on television they wanted to see. What I didn't realize was Bob, excuse me, was Susan and Barry locked eyes. <laughs> and whatever happened, my, my friend Bob called me the next day and said, you know what happened last night? Susan and Barry are now an item. <laughs> she left Chris. Damn it, Janet. <laughs> and when I gathered, their relationship was on the rocks anyway. It wasn't that this is an overnight thing. So uh, I told Barry when the audition process happened, and I said, Barry, when you come in for your audition, just bring Susan with you because Susan wanted to do the project. And I'll take care of everything after that. So Barry comes in. And we're in the audition. And usually the, pro the casting director is the one who reads with the actor on stage. And I started reading with Barry and I stopped. I said, well, you know, this is ridiculous. Why, why are we having a 30-year-old balding Jew reading this with Barry instead of a, a beautiful young girl? I said, Susan, could you do me a favor and come up and read with Barry? So she didn't audition. She didn't disobey her agents. She was just reading with Barry. And the director said, who is she? And I explained. And he said, can she sing? Because the director knew Barry could sing. Mm -hmm. And said, can she sing? And I said, I don't know. Let's ask her. And she said, well, I, not really. And I didn't bring anything. And then I said, well, can you sing Happy Birthday? Which is a standard casting director thing in musicals. If they didn't bring anything, any music. And she sang Happy Birthday in that, sa that same sweet but small voice that she did. And the rest is, as you know, movie history. <laughs> Were you amazed at the success that this film took on and the uh, uh, cult class, uh, the cult status that it achieved? 
I was amazed, but not surprised because I knew it was an incredibly wonderful piece. Mm-hmm. It had great music. It had Tim Curry, by the way, you know, and come on. You, if you think Tim is good in the movie, you should have seen him live. Wow. His entrance was as good as any of the hello of the dollies going down the staircase. <laughs> no, because he right. entered from no. the back of the theater dark and his hair was layered so that every time he did a headbang glitter fell over both sides of the aisle on the audience Amazing. all the while singing so anyway that's that's my rocky horror that's great joe i want to uh, since we are celebrating national book blitz month i, I do want to let everyone know uh, by the way uh and i'm going to pull up uh, this little promo here uh you have an event coming up this week uh, that you're going to be in uh, LA and all the details, by the way, everyone will be on my YouTube channel. Uh, but, uh, you're doing, uh, it, will this be your first book signing with this? This is the first book signing in my entire life. Wow. Uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited and I'm terrified at the same time. <laughs> now I understand from our mutual friend, Judy, there may be a celebrity or two in place there. So, uh, there are many enticements to get people to go, to be there. Where is this taking place? Let's go there first. And well, then I can get all the information on my channel. Well, I, the most important and known independent bookstore in LA is called Book Soup. And it's smack dab in the middle of the Sunset Strip, directly opposite from where Tower Record used to be. Anybody mm. lives in LA, because the sign is still up there for Tower Record. But it's literally, literally right in the middle of uh, of Sunset Boulevard, and it's the it's the most prominent independent bookstore. Now, when I was reading the book, uh, getting into the book that you, I, 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 no, I, I'll, I was going to say it's seven o'clock this coming Friday. Absolutely, and like I said, I will have all those details on the YouTube channel. Um, on uh, in the book, you say that. Uh, the idea for this book came about when you were having dinner with Joaquin Phoenix and his mom, Hart. Uh, and uh, he said, you, you, you and Hart were uh, discussing your careers. And he said, this all needs to be written down. So thank you for making that happen. But had you kept journals or anything prior to this? Or was this all total recall as you sat down to write the book? It was all total recall, except when it came to specific dates or something that I, no way could I remember. But I sat down and I, when I left uh, Joaquin and, and, and Hart, I literally sat down and wrote two thirds of the first, you know, chapter, the David Hasselhoff chapter. Yes. It wasn't until the Baywatch movie came out that I had enough information to do the third part, but, um, no, that's how it started. It, it started that way. And I had a very good editor by the name of James Gavin, who wrote the, um, the, the, the George Michael book. Cause James when I-, Gavin, I, let me give a shout out to James because since it is national book blitz month, James is a friend, uh, Peggy Lee, Lena Horn, uh, Michael, uh, George Michael, so many great books that he's written. Yeah. Well, he, I would I, I started writing this, and I sent him 60 pages. He returned 30. And he also, I went off on a tangent about David Merrick. And he pointed out that my book was not about David Merrick. It was about me. <laughs> so he was, he was very, very instrumental at making the book, you know, what it is. And, um, you know, I, 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 well, I'm blubbering now. No, that's okay. 
But that was the, um, and I also learned during this process to keep my own voice and to not sound smarter or more used vocabularies that were beyond me. So, and I think that came, if you, if anybody is, well, hopefully people will hear this and they'll also read the book. I think I'm told it sounds, it reads exactly the way I talk. Well, it's a, it's a great read. So again, congratulations. And thank you, James Gavin, for the work that you brought to this. Uh, when you, uh, you, you mentioned that you started off with the David Hasselhoff chapter. Uh, with all that's happened in your career, I mean, and that's a major part of it as well, but why that is the starting off point? Well, because it, it, shows, the, it, it shows the casting process. It shows the casting process from a network point of view. And I and also, it's funny. I think. Yes. yes. <laughs> so um, you know, especially the in the when it came to casting David and Knight Rider, mm-hmm. um, yeah, where the Universal didn't want him. You know, th- th- their list was ridiculous of who and and basic. So I got to, I, I call it my um, oh god, my Norma Ray moment. Yes. Got to rant and rave and yell and curse in favor of, of, of what do you call it? Of, I mean, I could do some of it if you, if it's okay here. Uh, it, it's absolutely okay. We, again, we want people to buy the book, but uh, please go there. Uh, well, this will entice them to get, get the book. Well, in the, when, when, um, so they were, the, the universal people thought that Knight Rider was this great literary work. And, you know, they, they dismissed, by the way, and, Everybody we approached turned it down. Some nicely and some from, are you fucking kidding? You know, so no one wanted to do it. I mean, and and as I say in the book, but Australian Australian actors were not yet imported. Right. Probably could have had one of those. But I, I, I got on my high horse and I, and I was like, look, at this time, by the way, David was a very big soap star and had a very big following. And so I said to, I started out quietly. And then I said, look, you hired David for this. I mean, David will not hold you up when it comes to renegotiate. If you, if you, you know, he's going to be happy as a pig and shit doing this. He's not going to ask you for half the universal lot. He's going to promote this book in fucking Albania forever. You know, and I went on in like that. I think I must have used the word fuck about 15 times. <laughs> but that- anyway. Anyway, and uh, it worked. And, and of course, the other reason was my boss, Brandon Tartikoff. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's the next part. That's Baywatch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway, so that's how David got in it. I, I know thanks to I write in the book, thanks to his uh, his chin dimple and, and my vulgarity. He got in it. <laughs> well, I, I want to from the start of the book until the very end of the book and when did you know that this book was ready to be released? Was it a decision that you made? Was it James Gavin? Was it the publisher? Where did, I mean, when did you know this no, book is I'll ready? Tell you, very easy. I didn't know. But um, I had a, a friend of mine read it um, by the name of Jeff McCracken, who's an actor. And Jeff McCracken said, this is wonderful. He said, can I give it to my friend, Julia Lord, who's a, who's a book agent in New York. And I said, please. And Julia read it and loved it. 
and that's how it happened. You know, Julia, so then I have a book agent and Julia pitched it all around. And, uh, you know, finally a publisher said yes, Bear Manor Media. And they said yes, and it was published. I, I'm, I have an ego, but I would never have self-published this book. No, it's it's incredible. Uh, what is the one thing that you feel that you've learned most about yourself looking back over your uh, the trajectory of your life, your career, everything? That's my first question that I want to ask. Um, and then I've got a second part to that question. Well, I, I think what I've learned when I look back at it is that there's like, my God, what an incredible life I've had. And none of it, zero of it was planned. I was lucky enough or, you know, I was I was a gay man or still am. And, um, you know, and it, uh, I did not have a wife or kids, although I would have liked one. But, you know, gay men didn't do that at that time. Not the wife part, but the kid part. Mm-hmm. I would have really liked that, but that wasn't happening then. So I, I looked back and realized how how lucky, you know, I look at my trajectory and I never planned anything, which I just said. Someone would say, like Pearl Bailey said to me when we were, when we got to know each other on a friend basis when she was doing Hello, Dolly. So I mean, when she said that she was doing a TV show, would I like to come to California and work on her show? And I said, yeah, why not? It's <laughs> great. You, you just went with the flow. I mean, were, were there any decisions that you didn't make were there moments when you did not say yes that you now regret yes <laughs> this is when i was now you know fairly well known i was head of talent for paramount television um and mike eisner was the head of paramount television he was later to go on to become uh head of disney and became huge in 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 the executive world and I announced that I was leaving Paramount. Uh, I was going to leave to go to NBC and become head of talent for NBC. And Mike Eisner called me. And mind you, I'd never spoken to him in all the years I'd been at Paramount. But he called and he said, we really want to keep you. Is there anything that we can do to keep you here and have you not go to NBC? Stupidly. <laughs> That was the moment where I was cold holding a royal flush and didn't know it. And I could have, would have, should have said to Mike, well, what I uh, really, you know, what I said to Mike was, well, no, I gave my word and a promise and I don't know how to get out of it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get out of it because I gave my word, which I realize now, please, <laughs> you know, I easily could have done that. But in, in truth, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I could have said to Mike anything I want. And I, you know, in retrospect, I said, I would love to learn film production. I'd like to become an exec. I'd like to learn all that stuff. Why didn't I say that? (laughs) You know, but I didn't say it. My life went in a different direction, which didn't turn out terribly. No, thank God for that. I do have a question for you as we wrap everything up. I can't believe this hour has flown by. Uh, And thank you again, Joel, for doing this tonight. Uh, And much success with the success of this book. Uh, looking back, um, since you first started as uh, in casting in L.A., let's go there. Uh, yeah. What is the biggest uh, change that you've seen in the business that you think is a true positive? Uh, and I think I know the answer. And what is the biggest change that you missed that was in place when you first started? 
Well, the answer to sort of both those questions is the word diversity. Uh, when I when I was started casting, unless a role this was described as black or whatever, um, you didn't go there. And and many times I asked because let let's say I couldn't find a white actor who was good enough or right enough for that part, and I would say to the producer or the writer, "Look, you know, can we go black with this part or whatever?" Because I can't find anybody, and almost always the answer was no. So the answer to the second part of your question is what I just said. The fact that we are now casting the way it should be. Amen. And, and, and I, I recognize myself as being, you know, culturally biased because that's the way I grew up. I didn't know any better. It was only the last few years, A, that I even heard that term. But, but even so, casting directors were a beat ahead. And I have this little story that's in the book, and I may cry. <laughs> I'm at Cray with you, so it, go ahead. It was a very small part on a, on a Starsky and Hutch. And the role was basically a woman giving information. And her character name was Dr. Moskowitz. And I, with, without telling the, maybe I told the producer, but it's a basic do what you want kind of thing. And I hired a wonderful Asian actress by the name of Beulah Kuo. And it was a one day part. I had seen her work in many things. She came into my office after, after she did the, the, after she, her shoot. She brought me a name and proudly showed me her name tag that said Dr. Max Moskowitz. And what she said was no one had done that before. Wow. And to me, it was making the part more interesting. You know, it's um, I didn't do it because I was a wonderful because I was trying to change the world. I just did it because I thought it would be good for the piece. You know, and I will never forget that. That's amazing. That's a beautiful story. Joel, our time is up, uh, but don't go anywhere for a moment. Uh, I'm going to give my closing remarks and then I'm going to give you the final word tonight. It could be about anything that we talked about that you want to build upon, anything we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message that you want to leave everyone with tonight. Uh, don't worry about how to end the show. As soon as you say goodbye, uh, the final credits will roll. Uh, each day, as you all know, I pull a word for the day, and the word that I pull today is usefulness. And I believe that all of us have a purpose. All of us have, uh, if we all bring the best of who we are, and I'm talking about our authentic selves to the table, the world's going to be a better place. I really, truly believe that. And as I'm reading this book, Joel, the one thing that comes out for me is you mentioned earlier telling this story in your voice. You don't pull back any punches. I don't know if there was anything that was left out that we don't know anything about. And if so, let me take you off a drink sometime when you're back in New York and you can share them with me privately. But it is such a great read. Uh, the book, again, is Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season. Uh, everyone, the book is available now. Go to your favorite bookseller. If they don't have it, request it. And then you go to Amazon and you can get it there. Uh, it is a page turner. You will not be able to put it down. I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. I'm a real proponent in picking up the phone and calling someone that you haven't spoken to in a while and letting them know how they matter in your life. Uh, and in addition to that phone call, 
This is my requirement for all of you tonight. I would like you to buy two copies of this book. I would like to, you to keep one for yourself and then send one to that friend that you love so much. If they love the world of entertainment, even if they don't, they're going to love this book. It's a great, great read. I have a dear friend who says we're all in the same storm, but we're in different boats. And I say, I don't care if you're on a yacht or a sailboat or a canoe or a raft or even pushing a tugboat upstream. Make sure that if you're in any of those boats, that you have a skipper by your side. And with that, I'm going to leave the screen, Joel, and it's all yours. And again, you're welcome here anytime. Thank you, and it's all yours. Well, first I want to say a thank you to two people, Lou Liberatore and Yvonne Strodain, and they will know why. And the second one is do not listen to your parents. Do not do what they tell you they think is right for you. You follow what you want to follow. And if that doesn't work, then go back to what your parents said. <laughs>